Welcome to Nobody Told Me. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. Joining us on this episode is Dr. Abigail Marsh, author of the book, The Fear Factor, How One Emotion Connects Altruists, Psychopaths, and Everyone in Between. It's been called an important book about the things that make some of us angels, some of us devils, and all of us human. Welcome to the show. We are so, so excited to talk to you in large part because it's great to see so much positive research being done on this topic. You always think of people being a little bit cynical about other people, and it seems like your work has proven that people can be good to each other. Absolutely. That's one of my favorite parts of my work, too. So talk to us about your own story and how you saw the best and the worst in people as a young adult and how that changed your path in life. So my interest in this topic was really kicked off by a pair of incidents that sort of bookended my uh, early adulthood. In one of them, my life was saved by a stranger. And in the other, I was um, injured um, somewhat seriously by a stranger. And it really gave me a deep personal knowledge of the extremes of human nature. Um, In the first incident, I was 19 years old uh, when a a stranger saved my life. It happened when I was driving from Seattle back to my hometown of Tacoma down the major freeway linking the two cities, which is Interstate 5. And it was late at night. And as I was crossing an overpass back into Tacoma, a very small dog ran out in front of my car. And I am a dog lover like many people. And my instinct, like a lot of people's instincts, was to swerve to avoid the dog. And you shouldn't ever do that. I now know um, because uh, the swerve sent my car uh, first fishtailing and then spinning across the freeway when I finally lost control. And uh, I ended up in the fast lane of the freeway um, on this uh, overpass, again, with no shoulders And my car had spun around completely, so I was facing backward into the oncoming traffic, and then my engine died. And I didn't have a cell phone because it was back in the 90s, and I really thought I was going to die because there was nowhere to escape. There was no way to get help. And I just sat there not knowing what to do for I'm not sure how long, and then suddenly a stranger appeared next to my passenger side window, which was on the side of the road at that point, and said, you look like you could use some help. And I said, yeah, I could. And um, so he ran around the car, got into the the driver's seat. I scooched over. He got my car running again, got me back um, to the other side of the road. I realized later what he'd done is he'd pulled off uh, onto the side of the road opposite me and then run across the freeway to reach me in the middle of the night. Wow. Yeah, five lanes of really horrific traffic. And... um, and then he looked at me and I remember just being shaking and clammy. And he said, you don't look so good. You need me to follow you for a while to make sure you'll get home okay? And I said, no, no, I'll be all right. I'll be all right. And he said, okay, you take care of yourself. And then he got back out of my car and just disappeared into the night. And uh, you never found out who that was. I never did. No, I don't know anything about him. I mean, I sort of remember what he looks like. Um mm-hmm. But uh, that's it. But I thought uh, it was I've, so cool how you thanked him in your TED Talk. In case yeah. that guy was watching or listening, I thought that was amazing. Thanks. I still hope that one day I might learn who he was. Yeah. There's a chance. Yeah. And then how um, did you experience the other extreme in human nature? Well, that happened a few years later when I was a graduate student. So I was already studying psychology and I had already started looking at some of the um, cognitive processes that cause people to care for other people or not. 
And but it was all still a little bit abstract and distant until I made the potentially debatable decision to go to Las Vegas with my um, high school friends for the Y2K party uh, for the millennium uh, for the year 2000. And um, it wouldn't have been my first choice, but my friends were going. So I thought, well, this would be fun. And we we decided to do it right. We got all dressed up in our sequins and our sparkles. And I think my friends brought their feather boas and all sorts of fun stuff for uh, the big night. And we went out in the town. Everybody else was out there, too. Who knows how many thousands of people out in the middle of the Las Vegas Strip, definitely drinking too much. Um, and it was sort of a fun party atmosphere for a while, but then it's sort of just, you know, not surprisingly got a lot seedier as the night went on and the men were getting pretty grabby. Um, and there were a lot of police officers around, but they weren't going to help intervene with anything like that. And, uh, I, it was, uh, I don't even remember the, how many times I've been grabbed that night. And I just finally got so fed up with it. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, the next guy who grabs me, I'm just going to let him have it. And, you know, seconds later, another guy grabbed my ass. I don't know if I can say ass on your podcast. but Sure, there, go ahead. There I, I, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> we understand um, what you mean. <laughs> yeah. And um, I just turned around and glared at him. And he was this sort of... He was not much taller than me, and I'm very small, so he was looking me right in the eye with this really just so smug, proud of himself smile, and I remember his hair being all slicked back, and he just looked like a jerk. And, I, you know, I, again, I didn't really think about it. I just hauled back, and I slapped him across the face. And, you know, my mind was like, he had it coming. Right, Grabbing yeah. Strange women, you know, you should expect to get slapped. Yeah. That doesn't mean it was a good decision on my part. And, uh... I can still remember it was even before I had made contact with him, I could see him starting to haul back himself and he didn't just slap me. He punched me as hard as he could in the face um, and broke my nose, sent me sprawling backward onto the pavement, blood pouring down my face, knocked out one of my contact lenses. Um, and I, then he disappeared. <laughs> he too disappeared into the night. Um, and, uh, you know, one of my friends sort of helped pick me up and sort of try to shake it off. And we weren't really sure what to do. Uh, he just had disappeared on us. And a minute later, the police came over with another guy. Like, is this him? I'm like, no, no, that's not him. Just definitely a different guy. And they let him go. And I thought that was the end of the story. And then as we were about to head back to our hotel, a woman walked up to my friend and I and sort of slurred into my ear. I don't know if you guys know what happened to that guy, but a bunch of guys saw what he did and chased him down and he's just a smudge on the pavement now. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Vigilante justice there. So then after that, you decided that you wanted to research altruistic people and along those lines, I guess, psychopaths came up. How did those two get connected? Because you don't really think of those two types of people as being similar at all. Correct. The reason is that it's really difficult to study processes like empathy and care and compassion in the lab. And that is the emotion that connects. It's one of the emotions that connects altruists and psychopaths because people who are very altruistic have a lot of those sentiments and people who are psychopathic are defined by the fact that they have very little or none. And if you're, so if you're interested in studying those processes, what it is that causes people to care about others and what gives us compassion, studying them by bringing just ordinary people into the lab is really difficult because to elicit compassion in somebody, you have to make somebody else be in serious trouble. 
right? That's what we, who we feel compassion for is right. mm-hmm. serious distress. And you, it's not like you can bring people into the lab and actually distress them or cause them to suffer. Um, not really, mm-hmm. not in a serious way. And so you could just ask people, well, how often do you feel compassionate for people and how strongly do you feel it? But people are very bad at reporting on those kinds of differences because we're all biased to see ourselves in the best light. And so the other way to understand processes like this, and this is sort of the classic approach in medicine and psychiatry, is to find sort of case studies or um, patient populations of people who are missing the thing you're interested in. So if you're interested in memory, study people who have amnesia. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you're interested in how people recognize faces, study people who have prosopagnosia, who can't recognize faces at all. And that tells you a lot about what you need for that process. And so I thought, well, if I'm interested in studying care and compassion, a really useful way to understand them would be to find people who don't have much of those things. And the cardinal population who is lacking care and compassion are people who are psychopathic. And so I did my postdoctoral research at the National Institute of Health studying children who have psychopathic personality traits or psychopathic tendencies. So how is fear the common connection? This is a very surprising, it's one of those serendipitous findings that crop up fairly often in science. When I was doing my doctoral dissertation, I found in a series of studies something that initially I had not predicted which is that you can predict how altruistically people will behave in the lab in simulated situations, but you try to make them as realistic as possible. It's not a perfect solution, but um, it's something. Uh, But you can predict how well people um, will behave altruistically in the lab by measuring their ability to recognize people's fearful facial expressions. So you show them facial expressions that are angry or happy or sad. And people who behave altruistically are particularly good at recognizing fear. So that was sort of, again, not exactly finding a person might anticipate. Um, But I knew that there had been research already done showing that people who are psychopathic are really bad at recognizing other people's fear, really bad at it, um, to the point that sometimes they can't recognize it at all. Uh, In fact, one of my favorite quotes is um, from my colleague, Essie Viding, who was testing a psychopathic inmate um, in a prison in the UK. And this was for a study where she was testing many psychopathic inmates. But one of them did a really bad job recognizing fearful facial expressions. He didn't get a single one right, which is bad, even for somebody who's psychopathic. And he got to the very end of the testing session. And he's like, you know, he's looking at the last fearful expression. He says, I don't know what that expression is called, but I know that's what people look like right before you stab them. Oh. So, (laughs) So imagine the mindset of somebody who can look at it really, I mean, these are not subtle, fearful expressions. They look really frightened. You see this expression and it, it doesn't conjure up any kind of emotional state for you at all. Like it just, you literally draw a blank. Even if you can come up with the fact that people who look like that tend to be in very dangerous situations where they have reason to believe something terrible is about to happen to them. So the fact that he couldn't even make that connection, that somebody who looks like that in that situation would probably feel fear suggests that really people who are psychopathic have a deep empathic deficit in understanding other people's fear. And it makes sense because one thing we know about people who are psychopathic is that they're often quite fearless themselves. They don't really experience fear very often or very strongly. And so what we think is going on is that when they see um, or hear or encounter other people who are afraid, they just, they don't understand the emotion. It's not when they really feel themselves. So when other people feel that way, they don't really know how they're feeling. And so how could we expect them to care about people who are feeling that way? 
So it's not that psychopaths are stimulated by seeing fear in other people. So this is a really interesting question. Um, There is some evidence that people who are psychopathic are sensitive to cues that people are vulnerable. So they might know that you are weak, potentially, uh, if you show an expression like that. But they can't connect it to the internal emotional state. So maybe they understand some things about people who look afraid, for example, that they're vulnerable, but they don't really understand what emotion they're feeling. But there's something else behind it, I'm guessing, that takes them from just not being able to recognize that a person's scared to actually committing the act of harming that person. Right. And so the the um, kind of antisocial behavior that really typifies psychopathy, people who are psychopathic, is what's called instrumental aggression, which means that you are, you're not angry particularly or feeling threatened, but you are acting aggressive because you want something. So you're hitting somebody over the head with a metal pipe to steal their money, or you're pushing someone down the stairs to take their phone, or you are threatening somebody to get them to do something you want. These are all forms of instrumental aggression, which again is um, a sort of a quintessentially psychopathic kind of aggression. And so we think the issue is that people who are psychopathic, like anybody else, they want what they want. And sometimes because the parts of their brain that process rewards seem to be more active than usual, they might really want the things that they want, whether it's money or power or sex or resources um, or even just excitement. And most people who want something from somebody else wouldn't be able to bring themselves to hurt that person badly to get it because causing other people distress causes us to feel these really strong, powerful emotions like vicarious distress, like guilt, like compassion. Mm-hmm. And people who are psychopathic just don't have those emotional responses. So they're not at all inhibited from hurting other people to get the things that they want. You touched on the fact that you've been involved in ongoing brain imaging studies of children and adolescents with severe conduct problems and limited empathy. Tell us more about your findings in that regard. Sure. So um, I and my colleagues at the National Institute of Health, when I was there um, starting in 2004, conducted some of the first brain imaging studies on adolescents who have uh, very serious conduct problems and some level of psychopathic traits, meaning that they lack empathy, concern, compassion, and remorse. Um, And they tend not to have strong bonds with other people. They're sort of loveless. And uh, we'd known for some time that these adolescents have trouble recognizing when other people are in distress. So for example, they have difficulty recognizing fear. And that suggested to us that the part of the brain called the amygdala was probably somehow dysfunctional in these children because that part of the brain we know is important for processing other people's distress. Um, So we conducted some brain imaging studies with a dozen of these adolescents and some controlled children as well who watched a series of faces uh, on the screen when they were having their brain scanned using MRI. And we measured their brain activity as they were looking at the faces and found, indeed, that in the children who had psychopathic traits, the amygdala was underactive when they were looking at other people's fearful expressions, which is probably why they have trouble recognizing or responding to them. Are people born psychopaths or born being altruistic, or when do these behaviors tend to come up? I know in your research you talked about how studying psychopathic children was surprising for you because they seem so normal initially. So I'm wondering when those tendencies come on. Sure. Um, and and it's, it's, it's simultaneously true that no child is born a psychopath and also true that some children are at 
higher risk for developing those tendencies later on. It's sort of like you could say, you know, no baby is born tall, but some children have more potential to become tall later on in life than others. Um, and the same is true for psychopathy. Um, there's clearly a genetic component to psychopathy. So there are things about children that, and everybody you know, knows that children have different personalities when they start out. This is just any, anybody who's been around babies can tell you that not all babies are the same, which is great, right? It would be so boring if everybody were the same. Right. Um, but uh, some babies seem to be at risk for developing psychopathy later in life if they have unusually fearless temperaments. Um, and oftentimes you'll see a connection between um, a child's temperament and their biological parent's temperament. So children who have unusually fearless biological mothers are often unusually fearless themselves. And in addition, some of those children seem to have sort of a, a coldness about them or a, a lack of social connectedness. They don't seem to be forming strong bonds with people. Um, and those children already very early in life by the age of, say, two or three, will see that they're um, showing a lack of sensitivity to other people's distress. So you can show that they are poor at picking out when other people are feeling frightened or distressed, um, and they are at risk for becoming psychopathic as they get older. So is there anything you can do to intervene if you notice these tendencies in a young child? There have been some preliminary studies. We don't have nearly enough research on this topic um, for a variety of reasons, but we need to do a lot more. Um, but the preliminary evidence we have suggests that those children who are born with these personality traits that put them at high risk for psychopathy and are raised by parents who are very warm and responsive, sort of at the top end of the spectrum of warm, responsive parents. So lots of positive feedback, lots of positive emotions, positive social touch, that sort of thing. Um, those children uh, end up being at much lower risk for developing psychopathic traits later on in life. And in fact, oftentimes they end up in the normal range. So it seems like early in life, there definitely is a window that children can be helped. Um, later in life, the evidence is not as clear, but there's some evidence that using somewhat similar techniques, but adapted for older kids, you can certainly improve children's behavior, even if their personality is not quite as modifiable, even in, into pre-adolescence and adolescence, using, again, strategies that really focus on positive social connections and um, positive reinforcement when children are doing the right things. The problem is that what people tend to do when they're confronted with children with serious conduct problems is try to punish them to get them to stop doing the bad behavior. And the reason that doesn't work, punishment is generally not that effective a parenting technique anyways, um, but um, it's particularly ineffective in children who are psychopathic because, again, they have limited uh, fear responding. And that's really how punishment works. Is you, If a child knows that if they're going to do something bad, they'll be punished for it, whether it's by having their phone taken away or getting a timeout or whatever. That aversive feeling you have when you anticipate getting punished is just a little form of fear. And that little form of fear is what will keep most children from doing the behavior that will result in the punishment. But children who are psychopathic don't have that little aversive feeling of fear. And so they just carry right on doing what they want to do anyways. And um, parents sometimes end up escalating their punishment higher and higher, trying to find some punishment that will work, and it just doesn't. And so that is, I think, a really important thing to know about these kids. You have this fascinating research on donors. So why do some people decide to donate blood or bone marrow or even a kidney to strangers? What makes them unique? 
So as I transitioned into my uh, current position at Georgetown as a professor, I found myself coming back to this central issue of care and compassion. So I'm interested in why some people lack care and compassion, but what I'm really interested in is, is the thing themselves. And I got to thinking, well, if there's some people who really lack care and compassion for other people, there must be people who are the opposite, who have more than the usual amount of care and compassion. And I found myself wondering, I wonder what's going on with these people. What are their personalities like? What's happening in their brains? Um, And so I thought for a little while, what is the most altruistic population of people I could think of whose behavior suggests that they really have a lot of care and compassion for the distress and suffering of others. And I came up with altruistic kidney donors. And these are people who have decided to give one of their own healthy kidneys to a stranger, usually a stranger they've never met before and may never meet, who is in kidney failure and on dialysis and and living a really, really difficult life uh, and suffering a lot. And uh, so I ended up recruiting um, some years ago a population of about 20 altruistic kidney donors to come to Georgetown and have their brain scanned. And what we found was really interesting. Uh, Their brains look sort of like the opposite of the brain of someone who's psychopathic. Their amygdalas, yeah, they are better at recognizing when other people are in distress. So they're better at recognizing fear. Their amygdalas are more reactive to those expressions. And uh, whereas people who are psychopathic have amygdalas that are too small, people who are altruistic have amygdalas that are bigger than average. They sort of have anti-psychopathic brains. And so there's nothing you can do to to change the size of your amygdala as a person. You either have a large one or you don't. That Probably that there is some way that we can change the structure of the amygdala. And I say this with some hesitation because there's not a lot of great data on this, but we do know that the size of structures in the brain absolutely change in response to things that have happened to us. So, for example, if people experience a severe trauma, there's a brain structure right next to the amygdala called the hippocampus that might end up smaller. Um, And to some extent, parts of the brain have a bit of a use it or lose it capacity too. So parts of the brain that get a lot of use will sometimes end up bigger. And so only about half of the variation in the size of the amygdala is due to genetic factors. And so that must mean that there are things that can make it get bigger or smaller as we develop as well. Hmm. And what do altruistic people say makes them special? Well, so that's the funny thing about working with altruistic people is that to the ordinary person, people who give kidneys to strangers seem extremely special. It's, it's certainly a rare thing to do. It's, it's a really beautiful thing to do. Uh, and, and most people can't really imagine doing something like that. And so when I first started interviewing altruistic kidney donors about themselves, trying to unlock the mystery of why it is that they decided to give strangers their kidneys, I would ask them, you know, what what is it about you that you think caused you to make this decision? What is it that makes you so special? And their answer very consistently is nothing. There's nothing special about me. I'm not any different than anybody else. This is just seemed like the most natural decision in the world to me, but it's not because I'm special. And so it must be the same for psychopaths then as well, that they don't think that their behavior is abnormal. That's a really interesting question. So they, like everybody else, are prone to a phenomenon that psychologists call egocentric bias, which means we tend to think that everybody's like us. And that's often true, right? Most personality traits and other traits are distributed along sort of a normal distribution, a bell curve, where most people fall kind of in the middle. 
and only a few people are very far out at the tails of the distribution, right? So if you think of, I don't know, extroversion or introversion, most people are actually kind of in the middle, not that introverted or extroverted. And the very few people are way out on the tails, like Bill Clinton sort of level of extroversion or um, Emily Dickinson level of introversion. Most people are in the middle. So in some senses, most people are like us because we're all sort of clustered in the middle, most of us. Um, but the people out on the tails really are not like the rest of us. And so people who are psychopathic are really far out in the tails of the, the caring continuum, I sometimes have called it. But they, like all of us, think that they're no different than anybody else. And what seems to be the case is that they think that everybody else who acts like they care about other people is just pretending. And some people pretend or act more convincingly than others. Um, but nobody really cares about other people. That said, they're also fairly narcissistic, so they do also think that they are better than other people. <laughs> um, <laughs> they're like, I'm, I'm just like everybody else, but a little better. I find it comforting that you say goodness is overwhelmingly common and kindness is the norm, not the exception. Because sometimes when we read the headlines and see the news these days, it seems like evil is becoming more common. So what's the accurate perception? This is a really hard one, and I and I know that it's easy to just blame social media for all the ills of the world. Um, so I'll go ahead and I'll blame social media and regular media. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and really, the the problem with them is the problem with us, and the problem with us is that we pay attention to things that are bad. Our brains are just built that way. We care about the bad things because those are the things that need fixing, and our brains are just not designed to pay as much attention to the good stuff. And the media of all kinds sort of knows that. And so they know that if they publish only stories of all the lovely things that have happened, Crossing Guard helps children cross streets, Librarian helps child who is crying because they lost a book, Um, Passerby helped baby bird that fell on the sidewalk, nobody's going to buy that newspaper. And so they fill it with all the problems that have happened because that is what interests people. And unfortunately, that has a result of warping our view of what the world is actually like. Um, But if we really take the tally of our own personal experiences, right, you know, all the things that have happened to you in the course of the day, and you count up all the times that people did something kind and helpful to one another, as compared to all the times that people did something unkind or unhelpful, the balance is overwhelmingly in favor of the good stuff. And what's amazing is that if you look at the statistics, it seems like the good stuff is getting even more common over time, not less common. Um, But for various reasons, including just our own brains and the way they're built and the kind of media that we're consuming, it's easy to perceive that the opposite trend is true. Dr. Marsh, at the end of each episode of Nobody Told Me, we always ask our guests, what is your nobody told me lesson? So what did nobody tell you about human nature that you wish you'd known? I definitely think it's true that nobody told me how fundamentally people vary. Everybody told me at the beginning of grad school that human nature is, you know, there's all kind of one big bubble of people and we're all just sort of the same. And I have come to appreciate all the beautiful differences among us as one of the most important things about being a human and one of the most interesting. Um, And it's in particular studying people who are at the very low end of that caring continuum that's made me the most optimistic because the fact that people like psychopaths exist is proof that the rest of us actually have the capacity for care and compassion. Um, And I think it's a really reassuring moral. And doctor, how can people connect with you on the internet or on social media? 
They can follow me on Twitter. I'm at, at AA underscore Marsh. Uh, and they're also welcome to look me up at my Georgetown website and reach out to me that way if they'd like to. My website is abigailmarsh.com. Well, our thanks to you, Dr. Marsh. Her book is called The Fear Factor, How One Emotion Connects Altruists, Psychopaths, and Everyone in Between. I'm Laura Owens. And I'm Jan Black. And you've been listening to Nobody Told Me. Thanks so much for joining us.